Welcome to the Gospel According to podcast, the first and only podcast looking at the intersection of pop culture and the Christian faith. I'm your host, Dave Hallahan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host. You may know him as the guy telling his neighbors to get off my lawn. It's Dan Ulrich. Oh, quite the opposite. I'm like, get on my lawn. What are you doing? <laughs> Come hang out. You're, uh, it's true. You, we've actually talked about how you are purposefully designing your house and yard yeah. as like the the spot. We're pretty close to being like a summer camp in the backyard. We're like one Gaga pit away from <laughs> uh, being a summer camp in the backyard. Well, get on it. You've got the space. Yeah, I'm working, man. One thing at a time. <laughs> Uh, we are not alone today. We are joined by a special guest, and you may know him as the guy who had coffee with the pink Power Ranger. It's Daniel Yang. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on with you. Yes, and I did have <laughs> coffee with the pink Ranger, Amy Jo Johnson. Outside of, of airport run-ins with celebrities, uh, Daniel is the director of the Church Multiplication Institute and co-author of Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. I was able to read this book last summer, summer of 2022, and it was great. We're actually going to do a giveaway of a copy of this book with this episode, and we're going to bring a double giveaway this week because I forget when, but a few weeks ago, we announced we were giving away a $25 PDQ gift card, and we never actually did that, Dan. So we'll post about that on Instagram, but one lucky winner will win both prizes to make it simple uh, for everybody. Make sure you follow us on Instagram so you can see about that, but you'll win $25 to PDQ and a copy of Inalienable. But before we get into our actual topic uh, of conversation for today, Daniel, tell us a little bit about the book Inalienable, what's going on here, even in the the subtitle, uh, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church, uh, there might raise some questions for people. What, what, why does the American church need saving even to begin with? So what's, what's going on in Inalienable? Yeah, so Eric and uh, Matt, uh, Eric is a pastor of a church in, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Matt is, um, the uh, senior uh, advocacy director of uh, World Relief uh, that works with uh, immigrants and displaced people around the world. Uh, they were really already kind of engaged in a conversation around how churches can be more hopeful for the future and in light of a lot of things um, that have happened in the last maybe decade or so, but you know, definitely more longstanding than that. In terms of, I guess if you were, if you were to look at it, the public perception of American Christians and specifically American evangelicals there have been others that have written books, uh, Kristen Cobes of May, Jamar Tisby, others. Whether or not you agree with them as historians and writers, they're trying to get at something. And that is that the public opinion um, of American Christianity is eroding. And uh, so uh, Eric and Matt had already been talking about, like, um, how do we frame that in a way where we're not disagreeing with that public narrative, but at the same time, how do we have a more hopeful direction? And we started asking the question, like, what are the key things that are actually helping to um, renew, reinvigorate, revitalize Christianity in America? Uh, and so we started thinking through what those things were. And uh, Eric is a PhD in um, the ancient church. Matt's in advocacy, and I'm a missiologist. And we started thinking about our own disciplines and how what we're seeing from around the world, what we're seeing in our own areas of expertise, how the church is actually uh, having a hopeful future. 
uh, despite some of the things that people are talking about in terms of the decline narrative, in terms of um, uh, the racial unrest, uh, those kinds of things. And uh, so what we try to do is we try to point to a, a couple of things uh, that we think is a hopeful reminder uh, that the church in America, God is still actively at work, um, while not trying to minimize the, um, the, some of the objections that people have raised. And so we're talking about how the ancient church has a lot to teach us, um, the church at the margins here in the U.S. and the church from around the world. Uh, these three things, among others, are actually helping to revitalize Christianity in America. Yeah. Yeah. I loved the book. Uh, it was a, like I said, it was a great read. And I do, I think, uh, that hopeful tone is so necessary and needed because it is, at least for me, it's easy to get jaded and, uh, even to become hopeless and just to look at all the problems. And frankly, they are overwhelming. Um, but there are positive steps that we can take. I like too that there's, uh, like discussing points and questions at the end of the chapters as well. So it's it's a good book to interact with, whether personally or with others. Um, and I know just for me personally, uh, like the idea, one of the, the main challenges that I took away from it was that like the face of Christianity, both globally, but even in America is becoming less white. And for some, that's a cause for concern, feels like a loss of power, influence, and can be threatening. I think probably maybe a majority. <laughs> it's probably just ignorance of that fact or indifference to it. Uh, but then there is a third option, which is instead of like seeking to maintain status quo or leadership to follow where God is clearly leading. And so for me, uh, I recently uh, left the church that I was pastoring at. And as I like move forward um, in what church will look like for me, I know that's that's something that's in my mind is like, well, where where is God leading? And it might it might be through people who don't look like me. And mm. rather than trying to, well, maybe I can find a place where I can lead. Uh, where can I follow that God's already doing stuff? So that book ha has been, it's stuck with me over this year. And uh, as I move forward, that's a question that I'm definitely wrestling with. So thank you for, for your work there. And again, you can win a copy, but if you don't win, go buy a copy. Uh, it's worth the read. All right. So that's not why you're here today. Um, you're here today. We interacted a bit uh, over Twitter. Uh, I invited you onto the podcast. I said to pick a, a movie or TV show that you thought had gospel themes. And it didn't seem like it took you very long to respond with Gran Torino, uh, uh, 2008 movie um, with uh, Clint Eastwood, whose name I almost just blanked on. Uh, but I'm going to go out on a limb, Daniel, and say that being a child of Hmong refugee immigrants had something to do with you choosing <laughs> this. Uh, why Why Gran Torino? What, what made you choose that one? Well, yeah, I was, I was actually kind of struggling between this movie and The Arrival. Have you guys seen The Arrival? That's another. Yes, I, Arrival is one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. With Amy Adams. And, uh, yeah. and, and because, and this goes to the point, and I, I don't want to, I want to stay on track with uh, Gran Torino, but the point that you were making about our book, Inalienable, you know, Arrival is an interesting uh, uh, tale of, you know, first of all, it's about aliens, uh, which I love, like, you know, reading C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy and all that yeah, stuff. Like, yeah. it's just very provocative to me to think about. I mean, I'm, I'm totally put on your tinfoil hat type guy when it comes to <laughs> aliens because it just like it blows the categories that we currently have when it comes to like human anthropology and theology and those kinds of things. And at least Lewis was courageous enough to engage in some of those things. 
but the arrival is an interesting. Uh, so I'm going to tell you why I didn't do choose arrival. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, and um, but you know, essentially, it's about aliens who come from the future uh, to the uh, to, to Earth, teach humans a language so that humans might one day be able to help save the aliens from extinction. So it's a time travel movie, aliens, linguistics, starring Amy Adams. Uh, and I thought about the movie, and it reminded me a lot about Western modern missions, hmm. where the mission, where the gospel went from kind of the Western world, you know, uh, London Mission Society and others, um, and um, following kind of the, the tracks of colonialism. Um, to Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America, and now these these parts of the world are kind of returning the favor. And, uh, you know, African Christianity is the largest in the world in terms of continental Christianity, Latin America, Asia, uh, and uh, into, at least in the United States, um, the largest denominations that are not declining or at least declining slowly, you know, kind of at a slower right. rate than mainliners. Um, a big part of the reason why is because of the global church from around the world arriving here, in a sense, uh, preserving um, kind of Western Christianity. So that to me was really interesting, but I decided to choose Gran Torino selfishly, man, uh, mainly because <laughs> that movie was shot in Detroit where I grew up and half of those kids in that movie were kids that I mentored in my youth group and mm. I had family members in the movie. And, uh, uh, but there are some kind of, you know, uh, pop Christological themes in the movie that I wanted to draw from. And, but I have a very strong personal connection to it because of it's, uh, it revolves, um, both the, uh, um, conversations around race and ethnicity, but also how that intersects with our ideas of redemption, um, and the roles that we play in. So that's that's mainly the reason why I chose it. I have family. I have family in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. That's a that's a good enough reason for me. So I think I, I want to talk about the themes uh, in the movie, but from a, a grand perspective first, like to to back out. I think to get the question out of the way, um, mm. because for this movie came out in two thousand and eight, and so for fifteen years, people have been asking me, and I'm sure you, Dan. Um, People want to know, what is the gospel according to Gran Torino? So if we just look at it from a broad perspective, and then I'm sure your answer can help us, like, we'll focus in on some of the specific uh, gospel themes there. But what would you say is the gospel according to Gran Torino? Yeah, and I I would say the framing of uh, the director, you know, Clint Eastwood, who's also the main actor, Walt Kowalski, is um, American society's best stab at you know what what the gospel what the good news is according to uh grand torino which is really to me a a critique or a commentary on racial ethnic dynamics in the united states so let me let me set it up and then i'll explain for the most part you know the movie's about um detroit but it's any midwestern city you know but detroit happened to be the city um and um Ironically, the movie was originally written for uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, but because of tax breaks, they brought it to Detroit. And, uh, you know, so the obviously uh, pre-1940s, 1950s, before the uh, the Great Migration from the South up, Midwestern cities, in particular uh, cities like Detroit, were predominantly white. And then after World War II, you saw the um, the migration from the South up North. And, uh, you know, for the obviously, and then there's redlining and... Um, 
the white flight that happens uh, decades um, uh, after that. And for cities like Detroit, African-Americans occupied them for quite a long time in terms of the bulk of the population. So Detroit is roughly today 82, 83% African-American. Uh, it's been that for a long time. Um, and, but back in the uh, you know uh, late 70s, but specifically early 80s, there was waves of immigrants, not just obviously Detroit, but into the United States. And uh, this began to really challenge the racial dynamics of um, Midwestern cities um, in particular. Um, and uh, if you think about this, if you think about like how we talk about the integration of churches prior to the, the early 90s, uh, if you were going to talk about uh, the integration of, like we, we say today, multi-ethnic churches, they would have used a term in the 60s and 70s, uh, the term integrated churches, because they were talking about integrating blacks and whites. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, you give rise to the term multi-ethnic churches, and that's because of the rise of immigrants in the late 70s and 80s. Rick Warren planted his church. If your audience is familiar with Rick Warren, he planted Sanibac Church in 1980. America was still 82, 83% white. Um, and so... But by the time you get to the 90s, you have this high, you know, this rapid growing number of immigrant communities. My parents come in 79. And uh, so that that is kind of basically the social context of the movie Gran Torino, Midwestern city. Uh, whites used to occupy it. Blacks are now the predominant, but they don't own the block. And then now you have immigrants that have come in. People don't really know why they're there. So there's kind of the storm of like, you know, and this is the setup for that movie. What the movie says is that at least what the uh, what Clint Eastwood and the writers say is that at the end of the day, Clint Eastwood has to die in order for peace to be established in the community. That's the gospel according to Gran Torino. But to me, that's not the gospel according to Jesus. Um, you know, I think in the, most of uh, American society, our best attempt is about the power struggles and in uh, decentralizing power. And so the commentary here is that if the old white guy dies, and that gives space for minorities to rise. And, you know, there may be some version of that that, you know, is uh, is we can kind of reflect on. But if you think about how the gospel really impacts, like how, how Jesus came, um, you know, cleanliness doesn't have to die for people. Uh, Jesus dies for people. But for those of us who follow Jesus, that also means that we have to follow in his steps. And so that means that we also die with him. Um, but I like Gran Torino's take on it, because in, in some ways, um, it's the wrong narrative. Um, I do think there, I do believe in like the importance of uh, redistributing power and control, especially in our local communities. But at the end of the day, in terms of our salvific eternal life with God, um, only Jesus pays for, you know, uh, our eternal salvation. But it does bring up the point that for those of us who follow Jesus, in order for us to see societal change, in order for us to see equity happen, we willingly offer ourselves. Um, and sometimes we lose. Sometimes we die in the process, if not physically, at least sometimes in social capital in order for others to be uplifted. And I do think that there's a tension in the movie where it's trying to highlight that. Oh, I prepared for Gran Turismo, the 2023 <laughs> oh, yeah. movie. Hey, we can uh, talk about uh, that movie too, man. That just, <laughs> that just cracked my top five guy movies. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. Uh, I had, yeah, some of those things where you're talking about the globalization of, of Christianity. And we see this, uh, kind of one of the themes that I pulled out of this is this whole, what does it mean to be a neighbor? You know, who is my neighbor? 
uh, in this. And he has that uh, Walt has that moment where he's looking in the mirror and he's like, I have more in common with these people that he, you know, hated was, you know, racist towards, he says, than my own family and kind of this idea of the story of the Good Samaritan and things where it's like people that I'm supposed to be enemies with, or at least in my heart, I'm trying to, you know, to separate myself from. And then we have an interaction with people. Uh, we cross streets, we cross borders, and some of that starts to fall away as we genuinely get to know somebody in their stories and realize keeping somebody at arm's length only increases the prejudice rather mm. than opening ourselves up, our lives up, uh, being maybe uh, awkward or vulnerable uh, in that sharing life together, we can see that, man, we're more alike than we're not alike uh, in those ways of, of seeing and not being afraid of this multicultural Christianity that's arising and trying to create a separation for us, but rather than how can I embrace that and see the gospel through different cultures, different upbringings that if I just try to silo my faith, that it's going to be a much smaller representation of what Christ is trying to teach me than if I embrace other cultures, other histories, and add that as a part of how I'm viewing the gospel. Yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, as you're saying that, it, it makes me think, you know, I, I want to reimagine like the movie. And uh, obviously this was not the intention of the of Clint Eastwood or the creators of the movie, but to, to maybe place Christians in each one of those categories, like what does it look like when Christians were essentially immigrants and refugees? Um, what has it been for like Christians to be historically marginalized people and decaying parts of urban cities? Uh, what does it mean for Christians to uh, be, be those who used to hold cultural power, but feel like it's being diminished? You know, I mean, it's a very interesting perspective uh, because I think to, although we're a part of those narratives, ultimately we know the narrative we belong to with the kingdom of God, like transcends those narratives. And so that has to help us form the gospel of the kingdom has to help us inform what it is that we're experiencing in our kind of social narratives. Like I'm, I'm not just child of refugee immigrants, uh, but that's very much my experience. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I can't uh, discount that. African-Americans can't discount their historic struggles in the, in, in the United States, but at the same time, they're more than just um, mm -hmm. uh, victims of slavery. Uh, you know, Walt Kowalski, who, in, you know, in some ways, he's positioned as a Korean War vet, somebody who fought for his country. Uh, this is, you know, backdrop of, a backdrop of Gran Torino is the Cold War. Um, and so, uh, you know, he's in a place where he thinks everything that he fought for and believed in is going away, you know, uh, which is not dissimilar to the January 6th narratives. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian who's approaching these social narratives from that perspective. I think it's very important uh, for us to be discerning and uh, to take our cues from a, a larger story, obviously, uh, not just our social narratives. And that's where the gospel of the kingdom is very important. And the biblical narrative is helps pull us out of our social locations in a sense. And it, it puts us in a broader, more long-term context. But I think the love of neighbor is an important thing because you see the transformation that 
Clint Eastwood or what Kowalski has throughout the movie that it's almost as he has to, he doesn't have to die for other people, but he has to actually die for himself. And as he dies to himself, then he experiences transformation. And that's, that's very interesting in the movie. Yeah. yeah that, cause I, I do think in, in many ways, uh, and you've touched on it already, but like Walt Kowalski, the character is set up as a Christ-like figure. Uh, even when, when he does die at the end, his body, as he falls back, it does even take like a cruciform pose. Um, and there is like some level of of redemption of his own character, uh, but also there is like a a saving in some ways of the character Tao, his neighbor, um, through that. But um, I it, it really it was his neighbors who were Christ like to him, and that's mm. where the transformation took place because of that. Um, he was hostile to them from the very start. Um, and even the the one where the the gang is trying to to recruit the, the boy and uh, it breaks out into a fight on the lawn and he comes out and uh, with his gun and tells them to get off his lawn and then the next day they're bringing him you know all these food and all all these gifts because he saved Tao's life like but even in in that moment as they're showing him kindness he's still angry at them like stop giving me this stuff I don't want anything <laughs> to do with you but they're like continued kindness uh is eventually what what breaks him down so i i do think that that love of neighbor and it's it's shown from really you know walt has the power in the relationship there um and it's the the oppressed immigrants who are Mm. are showing love like it's a a love from the bottom up rather than uh, top down which i think is powerful too um, cause that it should be easier for Christians who are in positions of influence and power to, to love. We don't always do that. We don't always use our power to do that. Um, but the story of, of the Bible is that the people of God are frequently, I mean, in scripture, they are always, almost always in lower positions, but they are mm-hmm. to love anyway. Um, and I think we see that through, uh, through the Hmong, uh, well, specifically his his neighbors who love Walt into redemption. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a great observation and um, breaking the fourth wall. I mean, <laughs> going. Uh, I I know the, uh, the the two actors who who played um, uh, being a sister or being a sister or talent and sister. B's uh, the male actor and Whitney is the the sister and Whitney's actually a, a strong follower of Jesus and uh, have have had them in my home and it's interesting for them to reflect back you know 15 plus years later on the movie because they realize now that like to a certain degree they didn't have autonomy in telling the story they basically had to follow the script that right. the original screenwriters wrote uh, and then Clint Eastwood's interpretation and vision of that. And, um, you know, they, I think both of them would say, and if not all of them, at least both of them would say that if they were to participate in the movie again, they would want to, they would want the movie to be told with a little bit more agency and autonomy, you know, rather than just, uh, seen as, uh, poor immigrants. Um, but, you know, uh, I think what is important is what you mentioned, the way that, that local community is set up and I know exactly where they shot that, uh, that movie, the, the, the set, uh, you know, those dynamics were tracks that were set for them long time ago, 
you know, so as an individual, you couldn't do anything to change how you got there. But then you had to, you know, you had to, in a sense, negotiate that space with the current players that were in play. And it, you couldn't say, like, like having grown up, I, so I grew up in inner city Detroit and had very similar experiences. Like, I couldn't say to somebody who was older and, and white on the block, like, you know, uh, act more like Jesus, you know, uh, because I need you to do that as somebody who is, a, you know, the weaker person, you know, right. like that wouldn't make sense. You can only genuinely and authentically play the hand that was dealt to you in a way that is most um, others oriented and most collaborative. And in some ways, having been the immigrant, like I understand Jeremiah 29, 11, um, in a very different way. Like literally when the Israelites are being told to, you know, um, settle, marry the children, build homes, plant gardens, seek the welfare of the city, pray for its prosperity. Like, I, I feel like I'm commanded as an immigrant to seek the prosperity of those around me, uh, including majority culture. And uh, maybe that's a subversive way, because in some ways the gospel is always subversive. And so when you are the people who you feel like you're on the uh, short end of the stick, you have no choice but to act subversively, you know. Um, and uh, in the kingdom of God, which is upside down, that gives you a competitive advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, you know, there is maybe for, well, I don't know what the intentions were of Clint Eastwood or, or uh, the creators of the movie, but um, for those who have eyes to see, I do think that like the message of the power of subversive love is there and of sacrificial love is there. And I think the, the, uh, the Clint Eastwood or Walt dying at the end sacrificially, um, is maybe the one that like would come to mind first. But I do think that the characters of Tao and Sue are, they are showing how sacrificial love has power. Um, mm. And especially Sue's character, she's uh, just kind of like unflappable <laughs> in the, you know, uh, with the, the, the gang members that like kind of corner her, um, she doesn't back down. She doesn't flee. She just, she calls out. It's almost like the turn the other cheek kind mm. of narrative. Like in when Jesus says to do that, he's saying to, you know, shine a light on the injustice that's happening. And so as they're kind of demeaning her and talking down to her, she just says, this is what's happening. Like you guys are playing into stereotypes. Oh, you're going to call me this. You're going to call me that. Like, I know how this goes. Um, and then even her interactions with Walt, who uh, is not afraid to use racist language and stereotypical language to talk about her and her family, but she doesn't back down from that. She doesn't get smaller because of that, but she's also not aggressive and she's not like, listen here, racist white old man. Like she just is having conversations with him and she, she maintains her dignity, which I think in turn shines the light of injustice on Walt. And we don't have that explicitly said of Walt, you know, saying the way that you treated me changed me, but we see that happen, that their refusal to shrink, but also their refusal to fight back and instead to just maintain their humanity and their dignity in light of uh, Walt's, you know, uh, racist tendencies and hostility towards them, that eventually breaks down their um, or Walt's walls that he had built up. So I think like 
that's that's something that grabbed me is sacrificial love is power for the powerless mm-hmm. and i think that is a, a key theme of the gospel of, of jesus christ and it's it's counterintuitive it's hard to live in and it's certainly hard as someone from predominant the predominant culture like it's hard for me to tell those who are are not a part of a predominant culture will just love sacrificially and and it'll be fine. But I do think that's the message of the gospel, that that's the power that we do have, regardless of where we find ourselves amongst the social hierarchy, is we can always uh, love sacrificially, and that has the power to change people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the major difference is that um, it's a matter of uh, autonomy and agency. So I think uh, a person can only meaningfully live sacrificially if they feel like that's their choice in the matter, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the gospel is an internal resource. When you don't have physical, social capital, when you don't have advantages, where else can you find an internal resource strong enough that even when you know you're the marginalized person, and you know, you can be a person with white skin and be marginalized. So I'm just kind of using that as a general category. But when you're the marginalized person, where else are you going to go to in order to have those internal resources say, and still I'll lay down my life for my neighbor, for my friend? And it has to be a much more compelling, stronger narrative than the ones that are circling you, right? And so that's where I, I stake my claim in the gospel, because I think only in the gospel do you see something compelling enough that somebody who's already marginalized would say, and still, I would still lay down my life um, on behalf of others, uh, and I think Paul understood this, the Apostle Paul. You know, he says in First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, that famous passage, he says, you know, um, to the Jew, I become a Jew, to the one as one under the law, to the weak, I become weak, become all things to all people, so that I might save some. And Paul can only do that, though, if he really understood his identity intrinsically in the gospel, not in his Jewishness, not in his adherence to the law, not in his uh, Roman citizenship. But it was in, 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 in Christ Jesus, and that's why he then could lower himself. And I think, again, that is the equalizer. You know, that the gospel equalizes us at that point. Um, and I feel like what could have made the movie stronger, and I, again, it wasn't their intention, right? They're telling you the story of the, it was the gospel according to American discourse on race and ethnicity. That's really what Grand Trinity was about. But it was according to Jesus then there were been moments where I think the reconciliation would have gone deeper. Um, and um, the people here, here's the, here's the reality, you know, kind of again, going outside the, it takes years and years and years and years and years to process like racial trauma. And, um, and um, you know, you can't, you can't communicate healing conveniently the way that that movie tried to communicate healing. And I realized that, only the Christian narrative gives you a resource that helps you to figure out that God is generationally working out traumas. You know, um, you know when you see the portions in the Old Testament where uh, He is going to bless nations to the third and to the fourth generation, like you realize, like, oh, okay, I, I can see, I can understand that a little bit better. We now have the language uh, right now around trauma to better understand what my parents went through. God has not finished redeeming those experiences yet. He's still redeeming that in my experience. He's going to redeem it in my children's experience. And that is also a picture of the gospel. Um, And I was glad that at least some of those themes were trying to come through the movie. 
but it takes, you know, real life lived experiences like my family's and others to, to really uh, capture all that. I have a question. So at the end of the movie, if Walt doesn't die, he decides he comes to your church and he wants to serve. What position are you giving him? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. What position am I giving him? See that puts, that puts me in the place of power now. I don't know if I feel comfortable (laughs) with that. (laughs) I kind of like being the subversive. Um, well, you know, let me, let me come on, let me get at that from a different perspective. Uh, and, uh, I, I've led multi-ethnic churches, um, and, um, I planted a church in, uh, Toronto, Canada, and, uh, I saw myself as a, in a sense, as a missionary to liberal, um, uh, North Americans, you know, uh, and, and to a large degree, that would be children of generationally disconnected white Canadians. Um, <clears throat> Canadians are about maybe a decade or two ahead of Americans when it comes to kind of being a little bit, quote unquote, progressive and more like Europe. And, um, you know, it's sort of going back to the arrival motif. Um, it took me a while. My, my, my fir- our first worship service that we held, there was in this really cool art stu- studio it was about 50% uh, white Canadians, 50% non-white. My mom who my mom and dad who lived in Detroit drove up from Detroit to join us for our wor- first worship service. My mom was very uh, weak and frail at that time. She had a couple mm-hmm. of strokes that uh, she was struggling with. And I remember going up to preach and I looked up, um, I looked down at uh, kind of the room full. It was, you know, maybe about 80 or 90 people. It wasn't a huge room, but it was, a, yeah, as a church planner, it's kind of a crescendo. Little that I know is the beginning. It wasn't a crescendo, it's the beginning, but it felt like a crescendo to to the work that we'd done up to that point. And I saw my mom and uh, I realized the composition of the room and it dawned on me, like, you know, becoming an American evangelical is not a great consolation prize for what my parent went, my parents went through, but I have a better understanding of like a little bit of how God is redeeming uh, their experience. You know, that if I could be a part of at least helping to revitalize, reimagine American Christianity, in particular, reach secular, liberal North Americans, like I see the irony and also the genius in, in God's uh, plan there. And so if somebody like Wachowski, who, um, you know, let's say he's a Christian nationalist and let's say, you know, he's sort of an old guard person. I think my journey at that point uh, would be to build a meaningful relationship with him so that we could have mutual understanding and so that we could share love. Um, and um, at that point, you know, it'd be less about like position and power. It'd be more about mutuality. Um, and I think that that's really important. I do, I do see churches building that. That's what makes me hopeful. I, as, as much as the Hillsong documentaries and the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcasts and every other kind of expose out there that exists, I still see everyday people in communities, trying to build loving churches, places of belonging, embracing those that are different from them. Um, and that gives me quite a bit of hope because I know that's happening. I think the right answer was head of security. No. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> now, I, I I think that's that's good. And even um, the the hopeful note that you ended on there, I, and to tie it into to some of the movie too, like I think that that love of neighbor is so key. Um, and I, a few years ago, uh, I read through and then actually did like a small group, uh, class at, at my church, uh, through the book called the art of neighboring. And the, mm-hmm. the basic 
idea is just like, what if Jesus meant it when he said to love your neighbor in the most literal way? Because we, you know, it's often paired with the story of of the Good Samaritan. So then we kind of, we use that to hyper-spiritualize and, you know, um, I'm 36. And so, you know, uh, 9-11 was like, happened at a pivotal age for me. And so when I think of the Good Samaritan, I often think of, 9-11 9-11 and then I think of Muslims. I'm like, okay, so as like mm. this American, you know, the Samaritan in my life is the Muslim and I have to love the Muslims. And like, I I have some very minimal passing interaction with Muslims, um, but I don't live in a highly populated Muslim area. Um, and so it's really easy for me to be like, yeah, I, I love Muslims. Therefore, I'm loving my neighbor. But like, what about the my neighbors that are actually next to me um it's it's actually harder to love mm-hmm. even the people who who look and act just like me that live next door than it is the hypothetical muslim that i'll never actually have to interact with and so um i do think like that unease that walt was feeling um as he we don't really because of the way the movie ends we don't see it come to full fruition but as he interacts more and more with his neighbors, he realizes uh, they're not the threat that I thought that they were, um, yeah. that they're, they're not as bad as I, I, they're not going to ruin the neighborhood, that there is actually hope here, that I'm safe here, um, that they can be safe here, that we can interact, that we can um, not just coexist, but that there is, we can actually have meaningful relationship with one another. And I think uh, as we, we are living in a highly, uh, I feel like tensions are high um, in, right now, but as you get to know your neighbor, I think that tension will lessen that you'll realize, oh, you know, these aren't I, my wife is I wouldn't lock my doors ever. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's mostly because I would forget. But Lee is like, oh, well, we got to lock. Did you lock the car doors? Did you lock the back door? Did you do this? Is that a way? Is that a way? And those are good practices to have. But also, as we've gotten to know our neighbors better, her stress about that has lessened because it's not who's going to do what to our our stuff. It's, oh, that's Joe and Lisa. That's Carl next door. That's Kevin. That's like we know our neighbors. We know the people who are around us. And so our anxiety isn't what will they do? We know these people and we love them. They We know that they love us. So even just that simple step of actually going and and loving your neighbor. Um, and if they walk into your church, maybe you don't have a position for them right away, but you know these people and you you have a relationship with them. And so it's not about the, the power dynamics. It's not about fear or anxiety. It's about love. And, and that's transformative. So uh, I think that is our, our way forward. Uh, we see it a bit in the movie, but hopefully we can see it a bit more <laughs> in our actual lives as we uh, learn to, to love our neighbors better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has to be practiced in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the gospel is incarnated uh, most uh, is our churches. So yeah, 100% agreement. All right. We got a couple games, but uh, any closing thoughts on the movie before we go to the games? Daniel. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, for me, uh, that was probably the, uh, speaking as a Hmong person, that was the first major motion picture that was on movie screens that featured Hmong people. And so, 
what was exciting about that outside of some of its spiritual themes was that it was a recognition of uh, who the Hmong were in America. Because for a long time, people didn't know who the Hmong were. They knew that we were here. They didn't know why we were here. And so um, for you know, people don't maybe see it this way unless you're Hmong, but that Hmong gave us, that movie gave us more visibility. And so that we had a cultural reference point to point to, uh, to talk about our story. Um, and, um, and although we now look at that movie in a different way, like it was exciting when it came out in retrospect, we look at it, we're like, ah, oh, yeah, there was a lot of stereotyping going on there. And we would, would have told the story differently, but, um, it's really given us that. And it reminds me the power of what it means to let people just to be seen and how that opens up so much, um, uh, uh, trust for these kinds of conversations. So, but that's really what overall, I think what that movie did for my, my community. That's awesome. Well, I, I did, I watched it, uh, years ago. Um, but then I rewatched it in anticipation for this and, and I did, I enjoyed it. Uh, and like you said, I do think I saw some of like, Oh, I, I bet if we were to make that now, we would like make it a little bit different, maybe not lean on stereotypes so much, but, um, like I, I think I said earlier, like, I think for those who have eyes to see, you can certainly see the gospel messages, uh, in the movie and, and the power of, of sacrificial love. But, uh, so thanks for, for bringing it up so that I could watch it again. Um, now we've got a game, Dan, you want to do your game first? All right. So this game is called in the light of neighboring. It's called, this is my John or get off my lawn. <laughs> so I'm going to propose different scenarios that your neighbors might do and see where your tipping point is uh, for if you are okay with that. So this is my John, or if you uh, would rather your neighbors not do that and get to the point where you might say something to them and say, get off my lawn. All right. So those, so I'm going to give you a scenario with your neighbors and then you're going to tell me if you're all right with that or not okay. okay so first one setting off fireworks on holidays um yeah that's my john yeah i can give that. that i'll co-sign that also my john setting off fireworks other times of the year <laughs> <laughs> okay i i live in a very festive uh, hispanic neighborhood and i'm all cool with that so we, we have a lot of fun so yeah that's my john it's like <laughs> that first like the first week of july <laughs> It's just any point fireworks could be going off. I feel like the end of December, beginning of January, it's the same. <laughs> and like I, those like two weeks, I'm like cool with it. Um, with <laughs> with sleeping children, yeah. I mm-hmm. it does bother me. But it, it's because I yeah, feel like it doesn't affect me that much. But when my kid wakes up and is it, crying, that's when I'm like, oh come on, yeah, yeah. Luckily, my kids are older now, and my dog that used to get freaked out is old enough that he doesn't hear anything anymore so um <laughs> i'm more okay with it but it's just funny on like the town-wide facebook pages or things that are like that they're like oh there's the fireworks happy july 9th <laughs> celebrating july yes. 9th uh, all right uh so having your neighbors uh throughout december having the griswold light display so a lot of lights going on bright lights all at night next to you okay uh man you know 
my daughter shames me for not having enough lights. So that would be get off my lawn because I don't need the more shame. <laughs> <laughs> just be like, just look at our neighbor's house then if you're exactly. worried about ours yeah. not having enough. Yeah, exactly. Years ago, there was a, a picture that uh, was floating around the internet, but it was like a big Griswoldy type display. And then the house next to it just in a string of lights, they wrote the word ditto with an arrow pointing to the neighbor's house. I'm like, that's the spot. That's that's the way to do it. Uh, that's funny. All right. If your neighbor coming over and cutting your lawn or shoveling your driveway, anytime you don't do it right away. Oh, boy. Uh, get off my lawn because that means trouble for my wife. She'd be like, see, I told you to do it. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah. So... I'll take care of myself. <laughs> we had, so I live in a cul-de-sac and uh, one, one guy has a snowblower, which is awesome. And he'll like do the, the, uh, the sidewalk around the whole cul-de-sac, which is great. Love it. But there is a bit of a pressure where there's like, I'll shovel my driveway later. But then I hear the snowblower going and I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I guess I'll shovel the driveway now. <laughs> yep. I can't just be sitting inside in the warm while he's snow blowing my sidewalks for me. That's a that's a healthy shame. See, that's it a is. It shame. is. It is a healthy shame. Yeah, there's definitely this like unwritten rule of like, oh man, the grass is getting long and long, and then you hear your neighbor cutting theirs, and you're like, oh man, can't let them outdo me. All right, uh, having kids play games in the street, street hockey, football. Yeah, we love that, man. That's our John. Yeah, we we try to encourage that as much as possible. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we love that. You got hockey games going on in the cul-de-sac, Dave? No, we don't. Uh, th we played wiffle ball the other day, though. Nice. There, there's a nice, nice. wiffle ball, cul-de-sac wiffle ball game happening. All right. Lastly, having a rooster crow throughout the day. Hmm. Roosters would not last long in my neighborhood. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, get off my lawn. We would... Uh, We'd have it for dinner if it, if it stays too loud. <laughs> oh. That's funny. My neighbors have chicken. And he plays the banjo oh. also at weird oh. times at night. And I'm like... The chickens do? He No, the, the neighbor <laughs> does. Uh, and it's interesting because I've grown accustomed to it. But like I live in New Jersey and like 20 minutes from Philadelphia. I just... Oh. I, in the suburbs, I'm like, it's not... I don't know. I don't think of chickens and banjo here. It doesn't feels like I'm somewhere else. But all right, I've got a game as well for us. Uh, this game, is, we've played different versions of it before, but I'm calling this one in honor of Clint Eastwood. Uh, feeling lucky, punk. Uh, and it's a, a real or fake uh, Clint Eastwood edition. So I'm going to give you something related to Clint Eastwood. Uh, and you're going to have to tell me if this is Real or fake, true or false. Okay. Wow. All right. Um, so Clint Eastwood was offered the role of James Bond, but he turned it down because he said James Bond should only be played by British actors. True, real or fake? Wow. That sounds too real to be fake. I'm going to say true. I'm going to say real. This is real. Yes. I'm going to say real as well. It is real. Good job. Wow. Good, job. Yes. Good for him. Uh, I think this was, I forget now, in like 78. They said the specific Bond movie, but I didn't write it down. So, uh, But yes, he was offered the role and he turned it down. Fun fact 
for you. I don't know how fun it'll be, but he was also offered the role of, I forget the coach's name, in Any Given Sunday, Al Pacino played oh, yeah, the coach. Yeah, yeah. He was offered right. that role, but he wanted to direct the movie and they said no, so he turned it down. There you have it. Um, all right, here's a quote. You're going to tell me if this is a real Clint Eastwood quote or a fake Clint Eastwood. Courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway, real or fake? Oh, man. That sounds like a Western movie. Um, I'm going to say it's fake, although I can see it coming from one of his Westerns. All right, we got a fake. I'm going to say this is real. Man of wisdom, Clint Eastwood. Uh, This is fake. This is fake. This is actually the the other... uh, John Wayne? This is John Wayne. Yeah, that was a John Wayne quote. Ah, okay. All right. Uh, real or fake? There was uh, it's, it was a canceled video game, but there was a a video game based on Dirty Harry, where you could play as Harry Callahan, uh, and it was kind of like mission based and free play. In think of like Grand Theft Auto, but more. Uh, if you've seen the Dirty Harry movies, you mm-hmm. were this detective who was you were Harry Callahan. Um, but then it got canceled, 2007. Real or fake? 2007. Let's see. That would have been like primetime Halo time. <laughs> I don't know anything about video games. <laughs> um, I'm going to say fake because I feel like that would have been so far off from the Dirty Harry days. But I don't know. Fake. Uh, trying to get uh, back on the board. I'm going to have to say real just to try and uh, <laughs> just, get, just game for the gameplay. Play. Gameplay yeah. theory. This is, this is actually this is real. Uh, wow. No, no real reason was given as to why they canceled production, but they went as far as making a trailer for it. Um, and I believe Clint Eastwood agreed to revoice the character for it as mm. well. I think it was, I think 2007 puts it close to like the 30 year anniversary mark. They, they oh, showed it to right. kids and the kids said, Who? And that's yeah, why right. they, yeah, they, that's, they canceled that's the real it. reason. That's the yeah. real reason. Yeah, because like, who are you appealing to with with that? Yeah, people that like that mo- those movies aren't playing this video game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, last one, real or fake? We got a tie game right now. I believe. Oh man! Wow. Um, so this is for all the marbles. Oh, um, Clint Eastwood is the oldest director to win an Oscar for best director. Real or fake? Oh man. What movie would that have been if that was the case? Million Dollar Baby. Uh, oh, right. Right. That's the boxing one, right? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't yeah, going to yeah. help anybody out, uh, oh. but your competitor helped you out. It was Million Dollar Baby. Okay. All right. I'll say real because I can't think of, I mean, did Scorsese do anything recently? He'd be the only other guy that's like old enough. Well, he might get it yeah. now for, uh, what? what is a flower movie? The, the really yeah. long uh, movie that the middle of it that everyone says is um, yeah. I'm going to say, say real. I'm going to say this is false that he's the oldest uh, to win the best actor, but not director. Okay. Well, unsurprisingly, Daniel won, but which one? Which Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> it, that is real. Daniel Yang is our winner. Uh, All right. If you both went real, I did have a tiebreaker in play. I was going to have you guess how old he was when he and he was 74 when he won. Wow. Yeah. He was 74 when he directed Million Dollar Baby. Yes. Yeah. I feel like he's looked like he's 80 for the last (laughs) 40 years. Right. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's true. Wow. All right. Well, 
that's uh those are our games thank you daniel for joining us make sure thanks for every, having me everyone yeah. out there uh uh pick up uh daniel's book wherever good books are sold uh, you can find that thank you for everyone joining us for the gospel according to remember to follow us on all social media platforms that exist or have ever existed instagram facebook twitter x tiktok youtube farmville uh mm. at tgat podcast uh, thank you for sharing the gospel according to with your family your friends your local neighborhood gang um maybe they'll hear it and have a change of heart there you go um so that's where you can follow us everywhere, TGAT Podcast. How about you, Daniel, if people want to follow along with your work? Because I think you've got another book coming out in a bit, right? Yep. yep. I've got um, a book coming out uh, with Zondervan Future now. Yep. Uh, my my uh, social handle is K-O-O-B-X-W-M. All right. So give Daniel a follow. And then uh, if you... Want to ask us a question? You can send us your mailbag question on any of our socials or by emailing tgatpod at gmail.com. Uh, or you can tell us something we got wrong, something you disagree with that we said, or just tell us how awesome we are. Uh, but we would love to interact with you that way. And make sure that you're doing your part and obeying the Great Commission by helping us spread the gospel according to podcast. One great way to do that is leaving a five-star rating and a review. And if you do that this week, take a screenshot of it, send it to us. That's how you'll be entered to win both a copy of Inalienable and a $25 gift card to PDQ. Uh, so make sure you leave your review. And if you leave us a written review, we'll read it here next week. This was the Gospel According to Grand, Grand Turismo. Torino. <laughs> Totino's Pizza Rolls. <laughs> and I did have coffee with the Pink Ranger, Amy Jo Johnson. Yes, that I, I was scrolling through your uh, Instagram today and I saw that. And I'm like, that's the one. I'm picking that. Daniel is the director of uh, church multi- of the multi- Church Multiplication of- Institute. I do think we, we'll have to have you back on for uh, the gospel according to aliens at some point. Oh, let's do you, it. You've opened that door. so <laughs> I'm uh, totally down for it. But, I'm going to totally, I'm, I'm bring my tinfoil hat, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I've talked a lot, Dan. <laughs>